Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And now, on with our story time. Chapter 6 The marshy region began very shortly, with a single track on a low, grassy embankment where the weedy growth was somewhat thinner. Then came a sort of island of higher ground, where the line passed through a shallow, open cut, choked with bushes and brambles. I was very glad of this partial shelter, since at this point, a rally road was uncomfortably near, according to my window view. At the end of the cut, I would cross the track and swerve off to a safer distance, but meanwhile, I must be exceedingly careful. I was by this time thankfully certain that the railway itself was not patrolled. Just before entering the cut, I glanced behind me, but saw no pursuer. The ancient spires and roofs of decaying in's mouth gleamed lovely and ethereal in the magic yellow moonlight. And I thought, of how they must have looked in the old days before the shadow fell. Then, as my gaze circled inland from the town, something less tranquil arrested my notice and held me immobile for a moment. What I saw, or fancied I saw, was a disturbing suggestion of undulant motion far to the south, a suggestion which made me conclude that a very large horde must be pouring out of the city along the level Ipswich Road. The distance was great, and I could distinguish nothing in detail, but I did not at all like the look of that moving column. It undulated too much and glistened too brightly in the rays of the now westering moon. There was a suggestion of sound, too, though the wind was blowing the other way, a suggestion of bestial scraping and bellowing even worse than the muttering of the parties I had lately overheard. All sorts of unpleasant conjectures crossed my mind. I thought of those very extreme Innsmouth types, said to be hidden in crumbling, centuried warrens near the waterfront. I thought, too, of those nameless swimmers I had seen, counting the parties so far glimpsed, as well as those presumably covering other roads. The number of my pursuers must be strangely large for a town as depopulated as Innsmouth. Whence could come the dense personnel of such a column as I now beheld? Did those ancient, unplumbed warrants teem with a twisted, uncatalogued, and unsuspected life, or had some unseen ship indeed landed a legion of unknown outsiders on that hellish reef. Who were they? Why were they there? And if such a column of them was scouring the Ipswich Road, would the patrols on the other roads be likewise augmented? I had entered the brush-grown cut and was struggling along at a very slow pace, 
when that damnable fishy odor again waxed dominant. Had the wind suddenly changed eastward so that it blew in from the sea and over the town? It must have, I concluded, since I now began to hear shocking, guttural murmurs from that hitherto silent direction. There was another sound, too, a kind of wholesale, colossal flopping or pattering, which somehow called up images of the most detestable sort. It made me think illogically of that unpleasantly undulated column on the far-off Ipswich Road. And then, both stench and sounds grew stronger, so that I paused, shivering and grateful for the cut's protection. It was here, I recalled, that the rally road drew so close to the old railway before crossing westward and diverging. Something was coming along that road, and I must lie low till its passage and vanishment in the distance. Thank heaven these creatures employed no dogs for tracking, though perhaps that would have been impossible amidst the omnipresent regional odor. Crouched in the bushes of that sandy cleft, I felt reasonably safe, even though I knew the searchers would have to cross the track in front of me not more than a hundred yards away. I would be able to see them, but they could not, except by a malign miracle, see me. All at once, I began dreading to look at them as they passed. I saw the close, moonlit space where they would surge by, and had curious thoughts about the irredeemable pollution of that space. They would perhaps be the worst of all in's mouth types, something no one would care to remember. The stench waxed overpowering, and the noises swelled to a bestial babble of croaking, baying, and barking, without the least suggestion of human speech. Were these indeed the voices of my pursuers? Did they have dogs, after all? So far, I had seen none of the lower animals in Innsmouth. That flopping or puttering was monstrous. I could not look upon the degenerate creatures responsible for it. I would keep my eyes shut till the sounds receded toward the west. The horde was very close now. The air foul with their hoarse snarlings, and the ground almost shaking with their alien-rhythmed footfalls. My breath nearly ceased to come, and I put every ounce of willpower into the task of holding my eyelids down. I am not even yet willing to say whether what followed was a hideous actuality or only a nightmare hallucination. The latter action of the government, after my frantic appeals, would tend to confirm it as a monstrous truth, but could not. The hallucination have been repeated under the quasi-hypnotic spell of that ancient, haunted, and shadowed town. Such places have strange properties, and the legacy of insane legend might well have acted on more than one human imagination amidst those dead, 
stench-cursed streets and huddles of rotting roofs and crumbling steeples. It is not possible that the germ of an actual contagious madness lurks in the depths of that shadow over Innsmouth. Who can be sure of reality? Where does madness leave off and reality begin? Is it possible that even my latest fear is sheer delusion? But I must try to tell you what I thought I saw that night under the mocking yellow moon, saw surging and hopping down the rally road in plain sight in front of me as I crouched among the wild brambles of that desolate railway cut. Of course, my resolution to keep my eyes shut had failed. It was foredoomed to failure. For who could crouch blindly while a legion of croaking, baying entities of unknown source flopped noisomely past, scarcely more than a hundred yards away? I thought I was prepared for the worst, and I really ought to have been prepared considering what I had seen before. My other pursuers had been accursedly abnormal. So should I not have been ready to face a strengthening of the abnormal element, to look upon forms in which there was no mixture of the normal at all? I did not open my eyes until the raucous clamor came loudly from a point obviously straight ahead. Then I knew that a long section of them must be plainly in sight, where the sides of the cut flattened out, and the road crossed the track, and I could no longer keep myself from sampling whatever horror that leering yellow moon might have to show. It was the end, for whatever remains to me of life on the surface of this earth, of every vestige of mental peace and confidence in the integrity of nature and of the human mind. Nothing that I could have imagined, nothing even that I could have gathered had I credited old Zadok's crazy tale in the most literal way would be in any way comparable to the demonic, blasphemous reality that I saw, or believe I saw. I have tried to hint what it was in order to postpone the horror of writing it down badly. Can it be possible that this planet has actually spawned such things that human eyes have truly seen as objective flesh, what man has hitherto known only in febrile fantasy and tenuous legend? And yet, I saw them in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleeding, surging inhumanely through the spectral moonlight in a grotesque, malignant saraband of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that nameless whitish gold metal, and some were strangely robed, and one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers, and had a man's felt hat perched on the shapeless thing that answered for a head. I think their predominant color 
was a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish, with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs, and sometimes on four. I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. But for all of their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me. I knew too well what they must be, for was not the memory of that evil tiara at Newburyport still fresh? They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. And as I saw them, I knew also of what that humped, tiarid priest in the black church basement had so fearsomely reminded me. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them, and certainly my momentary glimpse could have shown only the least fraction. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting, the first I had ever had. It was a gentle daylight rain that awakened me from my stupor in the brush-grown railway cut. And when I staggered out to the roadway, I saw no trace of any prints in the fresh mud. The fishy odor, too, was gone. Innsmouth ruined roofs and toppling steeples loomed up grayly towards the southeast. But not a living creature did I spy in all the desolate salt marshes around. My watch was still going and told me that the hour was past noon. The reality of what I had been through was highly uncertain in my mind, but I felt that something hideous lay in the background. I must get away from the evil-shadowed inn's mouth, and accordingly, I began to test my cramped, wearied powers of locomotion. Despite weakness, hunger, horror, and bewilderment, I found myself, after a long time, able to walk so I slowly started along the muddy road to Ralwy. Before evening, I was in the village, getting a meal and providing myself with presentable clothes. I caught the night train to Arkham, and the next day talked long and earnestly with government officials there, a process I later repeated in Boston. With the main result of these colloquies, the public is now familiar, and I wish for normality's sake, that there was nothing more to tell. Perhaps it is madness that is overtaking me, yet perhaps a great horror or a greater marvel is reaching out. As may well have been imagined, I gave up most of the foreplanned features of the rest of my tour. The scenic, architectural, and antiquarian diversions on which I had counted so heavily 
Nor did I dare look for that piece of strange jewelry said to be in the Miskatonic University Museum. I did, however, improve my stay in Argum by collecting some genealogical notes I had long wished to process. Very rough and hasty data, it is true, but capable of good use later on when I might have time to collate and codify them. A curator of the historical society there, Mr. E. Lapham Peabody, was very courteous about assisting me and expressed unusual interest when I told him I was the grandson of Eliza Orne of Arkham, who was born in 1867 and had married James Williamson of Ohio at the age of 17. It seemed that a maternal uncle of mine had been there many years before on a quest much like my own, and that my grandfather's family was a topic of some local curiosity. There had, Mr. Peabody said, been considerable discussion about the marriage of her father, Benjamin Orney, just after the Civil War, since the ancestry of the bride was peculiarly puzzling. That bride was understood to have been an orphaned Marsh of New Hampshire, a cousin of the Essex County Marshes, but her education had been in France, and she knew very little of her family. A guardian had deposited funds in a Boston bank to maintain her and her French governess, but that guardian's name was unfamiliar to Arkham people, and in time he dropped out of sight so that the governess assumed his role by court appointment. The Frenchwoman, now long dead, was very taciturn, and there were those who said she could have told him more than she did. But the most baffling thing was the inability of anyone to place the recorded parents of the young woman, Enoch and Lydia, Miser Marsh, among the known families of New Hampshire. Possibly, many suggested. She was the natural daughter of some Marsh of prominence. She certainly had the true Marsh eyes. Most of the puzzling was done after her early death, which took place at birth of my grandmother, her only child. Having formed some disagreeable impressions connected with the name Marsh, I did not welcome the news that it belonged on my own ancestral tree, nor was I pleased by Mr. Peabody's suggestion that I had the true eyes of Marsh myself. However, I was grateful for data, which I knew would prove valuable, and I took copious notes and lists of book references regarding the well-documented Orne family. I went directly home to Toledo from Boston, and later spent a month at Malmi recuperating from my ordeal. In September, I entered Oberlin for my final year, and from then till the next June was busy with studies and other wholesome activities. Reminded of the bygone terror only by the occasional official visits from government men in connection with the campaign which my pleas and evidence had started. Around the middle of July, just a year after the Innsmouth experience, I spent a week with my late mother's family in Cleveland, checking some of my new genealogical data 
with the various known traditions and bits of heirloom material in existence there, and seeing what kind of connected chart I could construct. I did not exactly relish the task, for the atmosphere of the Williamson home had always depressed me. There was a strain of morbidity there, and my mother had never encouraged my visiting her parents as a child, although she always welcomed her father when he came to Toledo. My Arkham-born grandmother had seemed strange and almost terrifying to me, and I do not think I grieved when she disappeared. I was eight years old, and it was said that she wandered off in grief after the suicide of my uncle Douglas, her eldest son. He had shot himself after a trip to New England, the same trip, no doubt, which had caused him to be recalled at the Arkham Historical Society. This uncle had resembled her, and I never liked him either. Something about the staring, unwinking expression of both of them had given me a vague, unaccountable uneasiness. My mother and Uncle Walter had not looked like that. They were like their father, though poor little cousin Lawrence, Walter's son, had been an almost perfect duplicate of his grandmother before his condition took him to the permanent seclusion of a sanatorium at Canton. I had not seen him in four years, but my uncle once implied that his state, both mental and physical, was very bad. This worry had probably been a major cause of his mother's death two years before. My grandfather and his widowed son Walter now comprised the Cleveland household, but the memory of older times hung thickly over it. I still disliked the place, and tried to get my researches done as quickly as possible. Williamson records and traditions were supplied in abundance by my grandfather, though for ornate material, I had to depend on my uncle Walter, who put at my disposal the contents of all his files, including notes, letters, cuttings, heirlooms, photographs, and miniatures. It was in going over the letters and pictures on the orne side that I began to acquire a kind of terror of my own ancestry. As I have said, my grandmother and Uncle Douglas had always disturbed me. Now, years after their passing, I gazed at their pictured faces with a measurably heightened feeling of repulsion and alienation. I could not at first understand the change, but gradually a horrible sort of comparison began to obtrude itself on my unconscious mind, despite the steady refusal of my consciousness to admit even the least suspicion of it. It was clear that the typical expression of these faces now suggested something it had not suggested before something which would bring stark panic if too openly thought of. But the worst shock came when my uncle showed me the ornate jewelry in a downtown safe deposit vault. Some of the items were delicate and inspiring enough, but there was one box of strange old pieces 
descended from my mysterious great-grandmother, which my uncle was almost reluctant to produce. They were, he said, a very grotesque and almost repulsive design, and had never to his knowledge been publicly worn. Now my grandmother used to enjoy looking at them. Vague legends of bad luck clustered around them, and my great-grandmother's French governess had said that they ought not to be worn in New England, though it would be quite safe to wear them in Europe. As my uncle began slowly and grudgingly to unwrap the things he urged me not to be shocked by the strangeness and frequent hideousness of the designs, artists and archaeologists who had seen them pronounced the workmanship superlatively and exotically exquisite, though no one seemed able to define their exact material or assign them to any specific art tradition. There were two armlets, a tiara, and a kind of pectoral, the latter having in high relief certain figures of almost unbearable extravagance. During this description, I had kept a tight rein on my emotions, but my face must have betrayed my mounting fears. My uncle looked concerned, and paused in his unwrapping to study my countenance. I motioned him to continue, which he did with renewed signs of reluctance. He seemed to expect some demonstration from the first piece. The tiara became visible, but I doubt if he expected quite what actually happened. I did not expect it either, for I thought I was thoroughly forewarned regarding what jewelry would turn out to be. What I did was to faint silently away, just as I had done in that briar-choked railway cut a year before. From that day on, my life has been a nightmare of brooding and apprehension nor do I know how much is hideous truth and how much madness. My great-grandmother had been a marsh of unknown source whose husband lived in Arkham. And did not old Zadok say that the daughter of Obed Marsh by a monstrous mother was married to an Arkham man through a trick? Was it that the ancient topper had muttered about the likeness of my eyes to Captain Obed's? in Arkham too. The curator had told me I had the true Marsh eyes. Was Obed Marsh my own great-great-grandfather? Who, or what then, was my great-great-grandmother? But perhaps this is all madness. Those whitish gold ornaments might easily have been brought over from some Innsmouth sailor by the father of my great-grandmother, whoever he was and that look in the staring-eyed faces of my grandmother and self-slain uncle might be sheer fancy on my part, sheer fancy, bolstered up by the Innsmouth shadow, which had so darkly colored my imagination. But why had my uncle killed himself after an ancestral quest in New England? For more than two years, I fought off these reflections with partial success. My father secured me a place of employment, and I buried myself in routine as deeply as possible. In the winter of 1930 
1931, however, the dreams began. They were very sparse and insidious at first, but increased in frequency and vividness as the weeks went by. Great watery spaces opened up out before me, and I seemed to wander through titanic sunken porticos and labyrinths of weedy cyclopean walls with grotesque fishes as my companions. Then the other shapes began to appear, filling me with nameless horror at the moment I awoke. But during the dreams, they did not horrify me at all. I was one with them, wearing their unhuman trappings, treading their aqueous ways, and praying monstrously at their evil sea-bottom temples. There was much more than I could remember. But even what I did remember each morning would be enough to stamp me as a madman or a genius if I ever dared write it down. Some frightful influence, I felt, was seeking gradually to drag me out of the sane world of wholesome life into unnameable abysses of blackness and alienage, and the process told heavily on me. My health and appearance grew steadily worse, till finally I was forced to give up my position and adopt the static, secluded life of an invalid. Some odd, nervous affliction had me in its grip, and I found myself at times almost unable to shut my eyes. It was then that I began to study the mirror with mounting alarm. The slow ravages of disease are not pleasant to watch, but in my case, there was something subtler and more puzzling in the background. My father seemed to notice it too, for he began looking at me curiously and almost with fright. What was taking place in me? Could it be that I was coming to resemble my grandmother and Uncle Douglas? One night, I had a frightful dream in which I met my grandmother under the sea. She lived in a phosphorescent palace of many terraces with gardens of strange leprous corals and grotesque bracket effervescences and welcomed me with a warmth that may have been sardonic. She had changed as those who take to the water change, and told me she had never died. Instead, she had gone to a spot her dead son had learned about, and had leaped to a realm whose wonders, destined for him as well, he had spurned with a smoking pistol. This was to be my realm, too. I could not escape it. I would never die, but would live with those who had lived since before man ever walked the earth. I also met that which had been her grandmother. For eighty thousand years, Fithyal Yi had lived in Yihan Fli, and thither she had gone back after Obed Marsh was dead. Yihan Fli was not destroyed when the upper earth men shot death into the sea. It was hurt, but not destroyed. The deep ones could never be destroyed, even though the Peleiogen magic of the forgotten old ones might sometimes check them. For the present, 
they would rest. But someday, if they remembered, they would rise again for the tribute great Cthulhu craved. It would be a city greater than Innsmouth next time. They had planned to spread and brought up that which would help them. But now they must wait once more for bringing the upper earth's men's death. I must do a penance. But that would not be heavy. This was the dream in which I saw Shoggoth for the first time. And the sight set me awake in a frenzy of screaming. That morning, the mirror definitely told me that I had acquired the Innsmouth look. So far, I have not shot myself as my Uncle Douglas did. I bought an automatic and almost took the step. But certain dreams deterred me. The tense extremes of horror are lessening, and I feel strangely drawn toward the unknown sea deeps. Instead of fearing them, I hear and do strange things in sleep and awake with a kind of exultation instead of terror. I do not believe I need wait for the full change, as most have waited. If I did, my father would probably shut me up in a sanitarium, as my poor little cousin is shut up. Stupendous and unheard-of splendors await me, and I shall see them soon. I spoke the call to Cthulhu again and again. No, I shall not shoot myself. I cannot be made to shoot myself. I shall plan my cousin's escape from that Canton madhouse, and together we shall go to Marble Shadowed In's mouth. We shall swim out to the brooding reef in the sea, and dive down through black abysses to Cyclopean and many-columned Ehon Flea. And in that lair of the Deep Ones, we shall dwell amidst wonder and glory forever. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.